I'm Cheryl Kennedy from the Library of Congress. The National Book Festival is in its seventh year, and it has attracted tens of thousands of book lovers of all ages to the nation's capital to celebrate reading and lifelong literacy. This free event is sponsored and organized by the Library of Congress and hosted by First Lady Laura Bush. This year, the festival will take place on Saturday, September 29th, on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. Festival goers will meet and interact with 70 best-selling authors, illustrators, and poets. There will be activities for the entire family. If you're unable to attend in person, we invite you to experience the festival online. Our podcast interview series with well-known authors, along with webcasts from the festival, will be available through the National Book Festival's website at loc.gov slash bookfest. We now have the pleasure of talking with award-winning English fantasy and science fiction author Terry Pratchett. He is best known for his Discworld series and is considered by many to be the United Kingdom's most popular living adult author. His novels have sold more than 45 million copies worldwide and have been translated into 27 languages. His latest book is Making Money. He will appear in the Fiction and Fantasy Pavilion at the National Book Festival on September 29th. Welcome, Terry. Hello. Your first story was published in Science Fantasy at the age of 15. Your first full-length book was written when you were 17 and published when you were only 21. It's obvious that you have a vivid imagination. Could you give us just a glimpse into your creative process, how you come up with all of these wonderful stories? I have to say that largely my creative process consists of sitting in front of the keyboard uh, and then banging my head on the screen until it bleeds. <laughs> oh, no. At least that's, how, that's what it feels like. I... I, 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 I um, it, it, you, you cannot describe it from the inside. But one of the things I always say is that um, no one who's a writer fails to have been a reader. You know, you, you start with the reading, and, and the reading is absolutely vitally important. And uh, I discovered reading when I was about 10 years old. You know, no one at school had told me how interesting it could be. And I'm sure lots of people know this feeling that suddenly you want to read every single book that's ever been written, and you'll, you'll just read absolutely everything. And I was like that for, I don't know, five or six years before I settled down. And I must have cleaned out the, shel- the shelves in the library. And that, that kind of formed some kind of a compost heap in my brain from, from which things grew. Uh, this is an extremely bad explanation, but, <laughs> but it's probably the best one there is. Well, I'm certain that a lot of fans will understand exactly what you're saying. Did you have a favorite genre when you read so many books? Um, curiously enough, I read an awful lot of nonfiction. I mean, let, let me explain. In those days, uh, especially in a small English library, the fantasy was not particularly well represented. Uh, and, and indeed, um, I remember the uh, head librarian handing me three books that had come in that day and said, and saying, sorry, ah, you you like this kind of thing, I think. And uh, it was The Lord of the Rings. Really? Uh, and even though it was The Lord of the Rings, in those days, The Lord of the Rings wasn't exactly The Lord of the Rings, if you know what I mean. It was a comparatively new book. 
Um, it, it was assumed that almost assumed almost as a, as a matter of course that it wouldn't be any good and not a proper book, and so they they put it on one side for me to read. Um, so I started off reading fantasy, um, but then there wasn't much of it. So I started reading folklore and mythology because you know what the hell. They're pretty much the same thing. Guys with helmets hitting one another with swords. And I read all the, all the um, folklore and mythology uh, that I could find in the library. And then I started uh, reading um, all the ancient history because, you know, it was guys with helmets hitting one, on one another with swords. And um, some kind of magic happened. One book led to another book. And I think I read most of the non-fiction shelves, by and large. Uh, at least to the ones that, that you know, had anything interesting to say. Uh, so while I read quite a lot of uh, science fiction and whatever fantasy there was around, uh, an awful lot of my reading career has been reading non-fiction. Uh, you mentioned that you started reading Tolkien, uh, and I noticed that the Houston Chronicle said that, quote, Think J.R.R. Tolkien with a sharper, more satiric edge, describing you. Yes. How, how do you... I don't think I can take the blame for that. Um, <laughs> Would you agree with that? Uh, if, if I'm backed into a corner uh, and um, I'm threatened with alcohol, I'd have to say that if I have to describe Discworld to someone that's never heard of it, I say it's Lord of the Rings 500 years later. At least it's Lord of the Rings 500 years later if it ran on the same rules as planet Earth does. So, you know, the big battles are over. The dwarves and the trolls and the elves and so forth, you know, they, they've given up you know, the, the old animosities. And now they're in the big city and they're trying to make a dollar. And in a sense, in the Discworld series, um, the, the fantasy is, is quite real. You know, there are trolls in the streets and there are were werewolves in the city watch and who have an affirmative action hiring process. And <laughs> no one thinks it particularly unusual. So in a sense, the fantasy isn't the story. The fantasy is simply the background. And quite a lot of Discworld books have been murder mysteries or police procedurals or even romances. It just so happens that, you know, there may be a few, um, uh, a few vampires around. Well, that was a perfect segue because I was actually interested in hearing more about the Discworld series. Uh, I saw a description that said, Lost in the chilled depths of space between the galaxies, it sails on forever, a flat circular world carried on the back of a giant turtle. A land where the unexpected can be expected, where the strangest things happen to the nicest people. Uh, what was the genesis of Discworld? Um, back in the, uh, the early 80s, there was a big boom in fantasy. Some of it was good, and some of it was, shall we say, not so good. But the point was, it was out there and it was selling, and so I thought, now... Now is the time to have a certain amount of fun with it, because you can't start making jokes about things until they become familiar things. 
So in the mid-70s, Douglas Adams started making jokes about science fiction because by then there were grandparents who could speak Klingon. So once you know you've got your readership out there, you know, then is the time to strike. So I, I took, if you like, the classic fantasy universe, you know, the one with the, with, with the wizards and the trolls and the elves and so on and so on, and said, one simple question, in fact, um, what would it be like if it was really true? And interesting things then start to happen. For example, um, if you have your large fantasy city of half a million people, uh, traditionally you don't ask where do they get the fresh water and uh, after they've drunk the fresh water, where does it go after that? You know, they don't think of how the city actually operates. Classically in fantasy, we're interested in the princesses and the dragons and the heroes, and we're not interested in the plumbing. But if you do take an interest in the plumbing or, or how the city is fed or whatever, suddenly whole new stories happen. And really that was the genesis of, if you like, the Discworld approach, taking the fantasy seriously. And because I take the fantasy seriously, by some strange alchemy, it then becomes funny. I've seen many adjectives to describe you and your work. Witty, satirical, irreverent, funny. Give us examples of those traits. Oh, dear me. Half the time, I don't know if I'm doing it. What you've just asked me reminds me of my first visit to Russia, which was a couple of, uh, a couple of months ago. And uh, I was surrounded by journalists, and they said, you know, you delight in, con in incongruity. Can you give us an example of, oh, no, can you, you delight in um, uh, irony. Can you, give us, can you tell us something that's ironical, which is, you know, a bit of a question to ask some guy when he's just got off the plane. <laughs> and I said, well, I'll tell you something ironical. I found it much, much easier to get into Russia than I find it to get into the USA these days. Well, I guess there's a certain degree of irony there. Uh, well, yes. <laughs> so do you think you're a funny person? Have you always been, have you always had a, a sharp wit? I, I, I think I've always had a, an eye for the incongruous, the thing that is funny simply because it's, it's out of place. And again, within the Discworld books, I think a lot of the humor, especially in the latest books, um... Uh, it is to do with incongruity, um, something something familiar, but in circumstances that are downright unfamiliar. For example, in a recent book, which was called Sud, I had the chief of, of police in Ankh-Morpork, which is uh, the most biggest and most influential city on Discworld. Uh, he's, he's, the, he's the chief of the police, and he's got a baby son, and uh, every night he must read to him from a book called Where's My Cow? I mean, all parents know about this sort of thing. The kid has a favorite book every night. You've got to read a few pages or the kid won't get to sleep. And so every night at six o'clock, he's got to be home to read Where's My Cow? to his son. And this is kind of a beacon in his mind. Whatever else he fails to do, he will read this book to his son every night at six o'clock. Um, and indeed, an important part of the story on which he pivots is the fact that this man 
We'll, re- we'll read that book at that time every night, no matter what he's doing, no matter where he is. From his point of view, there's nothing humorous about that. From, our, from ours, there is, because he's a man battling against enormous odds at some point. But at six o'clock every evening, you know what he's going to be doing. I'm assuming that you will be talking about your newest book, Making Money, at the National Book Festival on September 29th. Uh, can you give fans a little preview of what you'll be talking about then? The thing about Discworld is that those, although there's more than about 34 books now, there are some big story arcs, but a lot of the books stand alone. In fact, most of the books do stand alone, but it helps if you know some of the background. Making Money brings back a character called Moist von Lipfig, who I've already used once before in Going Postal, and, and he was very, very popular, and so was that book. So I thought I'd, brought him, I'd bring him back to um, reorganize uh, the, uh, the Royal Mint of the city of Ankh-Morpork. And um, he's a criminal. He's a confidence trickster. He's reformed, but he still has all the instincts of a confidence trickster, which makes him exactly the right person uh, to reorganize the financial services industry. Uh, and that's really the starting point. Um, we, we have lots of golems and, and strange things happening and gold disappearing and, uh, and, and uh, uh, an, early, an early computer made of glass. Um, it, it's, kind of, it's kind of Discworld business as, as usual. Um, if I say too much more, I'm giving the plot away. Well, we don't want you to do that. I've learned that series work very well because readers become invested in the characters. Uh, is there a favorite character uh, among your fans, or do you have one? Um, I regret to say that the favorite character among my fans, I think without a shadow of, da- of a doubt, is Death. Really? Um, death on Discworld is rather like Bergman's Death in the Seventh Seal. You know, you can... You can speak to him, you can see him sometimes, and to an extent you can even negotiate with him. And he's quite solemn and rather sad and kind of likes human beings as we might, you know, as we might kind of admire a fly which continuously buzzes against the window pane trying to get out. He, he sort of likes the dogged way that we keep on trying and, and the way we, we try to ignore his existence. And he is, I suppose, very likable in some respects and has been, I'm pleased to say, um, of some comfort to people who have actually been dying. And so, yes, he stands out as a, as a popular character. Now, how about that for irony? Uh, tell me, how did you make death human, popular? Because he's kind of vulnerable. He doesn't understand about us. He thinks he does because he can see us and he can watch what we do, but isn't, that isn't the same thing. For example, he cannot understand why human beings keep clocks because sooner or later we're going to die and the clock is a reminder of passing time. So from his point of view, this is... Um, the, the clock should be the enemy of humanity. We would not dream of looking at clocks, but we just use clocks. Um, he 
that there is uh, one book in which uh, he's in human form for reasons which I won't go into. And he starts playing pool uh, with some guys in a bar and finds that, being deaf, of course, um, he can get a maximum score every time. But this does not make him popular. If he keeps just failing to get a high score every time, people will buy him drinks. He doesn't actually understand how human beings work. And in many of the books, he is on a steep learning curve. Well, it must be really extraordinary that you have actually made death popular. <laughs> now, you've gotten really great reviews from the American press. Uh, for example, the Chicago Tribune said about making money, Pratchett has created an alternate universe, and he uses that universe to reflect on our own culture with entertaining and gloriously funny results. It's an accomplishment, nothing short of magical. Now, based on those tremendous reviews, why do you think it's taken so long for American readers to catch up to British readers in terms of your popularity? Oh, dear. Well, I think for the first ten years, at least, of, uh, of this world's popularity elsewhere in the world, it was not particularly well published in the States. Um, I th it was not so much, in fact, published as, as released uh, without much, um, without much um, backing and without much PR. Uh, and then suddenly, in uh, about 1999, I had a new editor and... Uh, a new publicist, and, and indeed a new approach, and, and very quickly, astonishingly quickly, in fact, over a matter of a few years, my sales went from sort of uh, practically nothing to extremely satisfying. It was quite astonishing. It was as if a, a dam had burst. Um, and I'm remarkably, I'm remarkably relieved about that, I have to say, because it was getting a bit tiring. Uh, um, and that's it. Suddenly, uh, America discovered me, and I became a, an overnight success after 15 years. Well, we certainly anticipate long lines at your book signing and, of course, at your presentation on September 29th. You were a journalist for the uh, Bucks Free Press. Uh-huh. Now, how did journalism and your love for fantasy, and science fiction mailed? Um, to be any kind of writer, you've got to be really, really interested in people. And when you're a journalist, you meet people. You meet all kinds of people in all kinds of situations, especially situations they don't want, to be, want you to meet them in, like when they're dead, for example. You know, I think I saw my first corpse on the first day mm. that I started on my first newspaper. And that was a very interesting experience. And uh, on the newspaper I worked on, um, if, if it happened on your patch, you covered it. So there I was, you know, a kid of about 18 or 19, covering murders and very serious crimes and all kinds of little things, that, that the, the, the minutiae of, of small-town small town affairs. And that kind of thing is like gold dust. You, you couldn't buy it uh, if someone that's going to become a writer of, of any kind of fiction, uh, being a journalist, first of all, a hard-working newspaper journalist, is, is just the best thing to be.
What kinds of things did you learn that you were actually able to use in your books? <laughs> oh, I think it's it, it's largely the, the the way people behave, the the the, the strangeness that, that lurks behind the curtains in every street, um, the way that there is hardly any any such thing as a normal person. Uh, but we all pretend that there is. Um, it, 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 I just became fascinated by the way people react in various circumstances. You've obviously collected a lot of books and you have a rich library, but do you do much online research? I, I use the net quite a lot. Usually I know what it is I'm looking for. I just want to sort of refresh my mind or something. But uh, it, 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 it's, it, it's pretty good for, you know, if you want to, if you like, take away information. You just need it quick. Um, but, and actually, it's getting a lot better than it used to be. Um, but I do research in all kinds of ways. You know, just sitting down at a railway station and watching people can be researched. The thing is, Research is ultimately serendipitous. If I want to know about how you make chocolate, that's easy to do. You know, I could buy a book, I could do online research, I could talk to people, that's easy. But there are some research you do when you don't even realize you're doing research. And then later on, you know, a couple of years later, you need something and you remember you read a book about it, you know. Uh, so mostly, research should be fun first. You, you should kind of practice serendipitous research read books that look interesting because one day they'll be useful as well. So is that kind of advice you would give to budding writers? Oh dear, I'm asked for advice for budding writers all the time. And um, what I would say is this, I'd say, imagine that you wanted to be a boxer and you thought of me as a champion. Well, I would say to you things like, okay, it's about diet and it's about the road work. And you've got to get down to the gym. And you've got to go and watch the, the guys who are climbing the ladder. You know, get, get a few pointers from them. See, see how they do it. And you've got to do more road work. And you've got to get your diet right. And you've got to go down to the gym. And that's it. Follow these rules. And if you have any talent whatsoever, you know, you'll, you'll rise in the boxing fraternity. But if you want to be an author, it's exactly like that, except there's no boxing. You mentioned that um, there was bad fantasy and good fantasy at a certain period. And I'd like to know, what do you think the state of fantasy is in 2007? Well, the, um, by bad fantasy, I think it, there's a phrase, um, EFP, Extruded Fantasy Product which looks pretty much like the last fantasy you read, you know, with the heroes and stuff. Uh, so what I'm talking about here is the books that don't bring very much to the party, that, that don't come up with anything new, which are to fantasy um, what sort of ro certain types of romance novels are to romance. Um, the... Uh, what was happening in the 80s was that, that, that everyone was looking for the next uh, Tolkien. And lots of people were writing as if they were the next Tolkien. 
which was a bit of a shame. Um, I got through because Discworld was considered so weird it was worth taking a flyer on, and it was instantly a success, so I was okay. Um, I, I think now everyone is looking for the next J.K. Rowling, uh, which is really the same mistake. Uh, you should really be looking for, for you know, the first Ira Bingleback who's going to come out with a type of fantasy that we haven't actually thought of yet and is going to be really amazingly successful. Um, publishers, also, publishers always seem to be looking for something which is um, uh, like what we've got now, only different. Um, whereas possibly the stuff that's really going to, to work is the stuff which like this world just came out of the blue and worked you create fantastic characters and worlds and of course you have a lot of talent if you could have one magical talent what would that be well first of all i don't have a lot of talent i have a small amount of talent but i work it very hard extremely hard um and i know this because my daughter said um she thought exactly the same thing about herself. You know, you, you, you have a small talent, so you keep it shiny and new. Uh, you don't waste it, and, and, and you, you train yourself to use it properly. Um, oh, I'd like to play any kind of musical instrument. I have absolutely no skill uh, with any musical instrument whatsoever. I'd, I'd, settle for, I'd settle for the double bass, you know, but uh, violin if I could. Well, I think anyone who has a talent for making death popular, uh, then you are ahead of the game. <laughs> Do you have any closing remarks um, for your fans or for what we can expect to hear and see on September 29th? Something that I've tried to say over the years is, is this, that there is nothing more fantastic than real life. Um, this actually takes takes some thinking about, but there was a, um, a British author called uh, G.K. Chesterton. Uh, he wrote all kinds of things, uh, religious books, uh, uh, detective stories, and books that these days we would call fantasy. And he said that the role of fantasy, uh, or a successful fantasy, shall we say, lay in taking that which was ordinary and everyday and therefore no longer looked at and picking it up and turning it round and showing it to people uh, so that they once again see it with fresh eyes for the first time and think, that's really, really wonderful. Uh, and indeed, I think one of the best things that a fantasy writer can do is demonstrate how interesting the, the everyday, the mundane, can actually be. Well, Terry, that was wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. We look forward to hearing more at the National Book Festival on September 29th on the National Mall from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. The event is free and open to the public. For more details and a list of participating authors, visit LOC dot gov slash bookfest. Thank you for listening.